You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Let's pause. Let's pause and let's just pray and give God thanks for um, just the things that we've just been able to share together. Let's do that. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord God, for the privilege that it is not only to come into um, just a place of meeting with, um, with, with others in the body of Christ and fellowship together um, and to sing music together and to pray together, but then to also just share stories of the way that you are um, showing up in our lives um, over the last week. Lord, thanks for the encouragement um, and the reminders, just the subtle reminders and encouragement that you give us um, through one another. I'm just reminded that your word um, encourages us and exhorts us and instructs us to come together with um, with songs and 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 words on our lips to one another, and and so Lord, thanks for the last few moments that we've gotten to share together, where we have shared those stories and literally encouraged one another um, to be uh, reminded to to love others who are different than us well, while still speaking the truth of the gospel. Um, thank you for the reminder of of uh, of just the encouragement that you give us to give ourselves to others who are in need. And, and, and thank you also, Father, for the answered prayers of um, little ones being born safely and in good health. And thank you, for, thank you for the reminder of your creation and how you have really written your expression of love all over your creation to us. And what a, what a vast picture that is and a reminder that we are not here by chance, but we are here by your design. You're designed to be here to love you well, to love others well and to uh, glorify you with our lives. Thank you for those encouragements and reminders. And God, I pray that you would um, use those throughout this next week and in each of us um, to be reminded of your great love for us and to be reminded to be on the lookout for what you're doing and what you're saying to us. So God, I pray that you would do that. I also pray, Lord God, over the next few moments that you would um, that you would just be with us and help us to hear from you, from your word as I preach. And God, I pray that you would take the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth and that you would cause them by the power of your spirit to be um, acceptable and holy in your sight. God, you are our rock and our redeemer, as the psalmist says. Help us to rest in you and help us to catch a better picture of you. And I pray, God, that that as I preach, that you would um, just even... Um, somehow just remove the hindrances and the spiritual um, influences around us. Lord, I know that just because we sit in this building does not mean that we don't walk in with some sort of um, spiritual things attached at times and seeking to uh, stop up our ears or stop our eyes from seeing you. So God, I pray that you would remove those hindrances. I pray, God, that you would kick Satan in the teeth, so to speak, so that we might hear from you because there is, there is nothing more that we need more. There's nothing that we need more than to hear from your word. I need to hear from your word this evening. Though I get to stand in the pulpit and preach, I need to hear from you. And and God, I know that everyone
everyone here needs to hear from your word as well. And so, God, I just pray that you would do that work of silencing anything that would seek to destroy or inhibit or prohibit or, or stop um, our hearing from your word. Help us to become healed by the hearing of your word. Help us to be saved by the hearing of your word. Help us to be encouraged and challenged and changed by the hearing of your word. So God, I pray those things, believe you will do it and trust you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said? Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said. So as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar? Or not. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. So uh, it, it seems providential to me, um, as I studied through this passage, seemed providential to me that we would land here in this passage during this season uh, in America. You might wonder, some of you might wonder if you're not as um, um, maybe uh, familiar with the implications of this passage. Um, you may wonder. Philip Ryken in his commentary lays it out this way. This will make it crystal clear for you, for you. He says, if you want to start a good argument, start talking about religion or politics. Either one. But if you want to start a war, then bring your religion into your politics. Because few things seem to cause more difficulty than an unholy alliance between political power and religious faith. And today, as I speak and as we study this passage and as I preach this message, as, as we stand here today, um, the political scene in the United States is an absolute wreck, right? It's like a ticking time bomb ready to explode all over. Some might argue that it already has exploded all over. and It's a big, fat, gigantic mess. And here we are stuck in the middle of it, right? In many ways, Christians in America are becoming more and more marginalized in our belief and in our voice in the public square. People in our culture are often super hostile to the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. Yet at the same time, it's almost as though our culture around us is increasingly embraced more and more um, of what God calls evil. Um, we literally believe, I, th I think I literally believe that we literally live in um, increasing times when good is called evil and evil is called good. 
at the talking heads on our uh, news programs are spreading their propaganda. Most of it, I think, filled full of deception, to be honest with you. find it hard to believe anyone in the media. Um, it's just my personal um, kind of opinion there. Our social system, to be honest with you, is a pretty big basket case, too. It's pretty well unmanageable. Uh, the church throughout, I think, our country, and honestly, I think throughout the world, but especially here in the West, in the U.S., I think the church has become lazy, uh, complacent, and more concerned with hearing things that itch their ears rather than things that actually transform and change and give life. The institution of the family is broken. Uh, it's kind of an absolute wreck. And I'm not just trying to paint doom and gloom, um, but one of the things that you'll hear me say often, and if you're, under, if you're familiar with the message of the gospel being good news, and there's got to be some bad news for the good news to be good, right? Uh, and so these are just some of the things that we face in America today. This is what we live in. This is our context that this passage speaks into today. So our culture, I think, is also permeated with kind of a victim mentality. And that victim mentality has basically undermined true accountability. It's empowered people to believe that they are entitled to handouts rather than growing up. Self-expression is valued over self-denial. Self-esteem is valued over God-esteem. Times we live in can seem dismal and scary like all you gotta do is watch an hour or two of fox news and it seems really scary and i i appreciate fox news as much as i appreciate cnn or any other okay but all you gotta do is watch like an hour or two of, of news and i think you just i don't know anybody else watch the news here you watch walk away furious and frustrated and just what do you do now yeah. When, you, when, you, when you watch the news, right? And so, so this is a picture of kind of the culture that, and the environment that we are living in now. But the truth of this passage that gives me great hope, kind of the big idea of what I hope to preach to you tonight is this. That in the, in the midst of all of the hostility and all of the deception that we see in the world around us, in the midst of all the hostility and all of the deception that might seek to gravitate and get a hold of your heart or your mind and seek to get you in a place where you no longer see Jesus or hear Jesus, the truth is this, that in the midst of all of that hostility and deception, in the midst of everything that opposes God, Jesus is the answer that silences that opposition. Jesus is the answer that silences the opposition. He is the good news in the midst of all the bad news. I want you to think about this for a minute. Have you ever encountered someone who was so absolutely hostile and opposed to the gospel that they would like stop at nothing to discredit the words of Jesus? Like this is that person that you're sitting across the table from who's got an answer for everything, right? They've got a way to discredit everything about Jesus. CNN said this, Fox News said that, or the Discovery Channel said this, or the History Channel said that, and I read this book and my teacher taught me that, and Jesus this, and they just want to argue with you, right? And prove to you how Jesus didn't really say what he said or do what he did. Ever, ever experienced maybe the threat of emotional or even physical or, or relational loss because of your understanding of who Jesus is? Yeah, you ever been in a relationship with someone maybe? 
Ever been in a relationship with someone who, um, who sought to like cause you pain because of your stance in the gospel? Maybe because of your stance for living in holiness. Maybe for your stance on understanding the truth of God. Like this is kind of what's happening in this passage. Luke tells us that Jesus' enemies sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. Simply means that these guys wanted to cause him physical pain right there. If they could have got out a gun and shot Jesus in that moment, it's what they would have done. It's what they wanted. They were so furious with Jesus because of his stand for the truth. You remember the story. He just rode into Jerusalem, lands in the temple, flips tables over. Remember as he's riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, he's weeping over Jerusalem because of its lostness, because of the darkness that is there. He's weeping over that. And then he comes into the temple and shows the passion of his fury, flips over tables, kicks people out. He's ticked off simply because... Religious people of that day had turned their religious gathering place into a space of selfishness and self-worship rather than a place of mission and evangelism and worship. So he boots them all out and then sets up a pulpit and starts preaching. In the midst of preaching, he preaches a story, which we just read through recently. And in that story, he basically points the finger right at the very people who were responsible for the message of the gospel, who were responsible for the community of God. He points the finger right at them and basically says, hey, you're guilty of missing the point and prostituting religion for your own selfish gain, so much so that you are willing to kill the Son of God even. He prophesies that about himself, and in the very next passage we read this, that they sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. Like in that moment, they're standing in the back of the room just looking for ways to murder Jesus. It's a heavy thought. For they perceived that he told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So it's interesting. It's interesting. They knew that Jesus was talking right to them. They knew that Jesus was talking about them. They knew that Jesus was speaking words that were meant to affect their hearts and lives. Yet their response was to try to murder him in that moment. And the only reason they didn't was because they were afraid. Fear can be a very powerful thing, can't it? It can be a very powerful motivator. They were afraid that the people who were hanging on Jesus' words would do something to them if they tried to take Jesus out. So since they were afraid of the people, passage tells us, Luke tells us, that they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere. Ever know somebody... That ever have a relationship with someone that you that you just you had this strange sense that they were really highly deceptive, that there was something underneath the surface that that you just didn't know, but you you knew there was something there, almost like they were always kind of waiting for you to stumble and fall somehow, so they could kind of like point that out to you, maybe. Luke tells us that they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. 
So Jesus had just told this parable that confronted the hypocrisy and the selfishness of the religious leaders, and they weren't happy with how they had confronted their sin. That's the context that we're standing in. And they wanted to kill him, but they simply could not kill him because they were fearful of the people who hung on Jesus' words and what they might do if they actually followed through with this. So what they wanted to do is they wanted to hand Jesus over to the Roman authorities. They were trying this kind of this passive aggressive deceptive move. They couldn't get him out front with questions because he kept winning that argument, kept winning that conversation. Then they were going to try to kind of come around from the backside where he couldn't see them coming. And what I think is I think the hostility of Jesus' opponents was rooted in a couple of different places. I think the hostility of these people that were opposing him was rooted in in anger and jealousy and fear. I think they were ticked and they were angry at Jesus because he was getting the attention that they thought they deserved. Uh, I think that they were jealous of him as well because and I think they were also fearful of losing their position of fame and fortune even if Jesus continued to speak the way that he did. Remember that these people were, these other people that were there were hanging on his every word. This was typically reserved for the, for the high priest and his minions, right? And yet as Jesus speaks, everyone is hanging on his words except for those who are his opponents. I think oftentimes in our culture, this is what you and I may encounter. I think that we may encounter this in the world around us. People may be hostile towards us. They may be angry towards us. They may be jealous because of our stand in the gospel and the courage that the Holy Spirit gives us. But that's part of the prayers the Holy Spirit would give each of us that same courage that we see in Jesus in this passage. I think people will be afraid of the implications of the gospel on their lives. I think that they will be hostile to that as you speak the truth into those situations. But the one thing that I can say from this passage is that we can rest in the truth that in the midst of any hostility, in the midst of any deception that we encounter in this world, whether that be outside of us or within us, We can rest in this truth that Jesus silences all of the opposition against him. Think about this. Have you ever encountered someone so deceptive that maybe they kind of remind you of like one of those kind of slimy car salesmen? No? Crap. I'm looking around the room and I'm getting dead looks. I know like a couple of, of car salesmen and they're not slimy. But I have met some slimy car salesmen. You know the ones where you kind of, where you, when you show up on the lot and they come out and they, you know they're wearing too much cologne and they got the cheap suit on and, and they are hell bent on selling you whatever they believe you want. Um, and, and, the, and right, they're just going to get that into your hands one way or the other. Um, that, that, when, when, I, when I think of these guys in this passage as they work their slime ball strategy, that's what I see in my head. It reminds me of a, of a, of a, of a passage in Proverbs, which in, in my short summary says this, says, kisses from an enemy are deadly, but wounds from a friend give life. Kisses from an enemy are deadly, but wounds from a friend give life. In other words, if you love to get your ego stroked by smooth-talking friends who gloss over and excuse your sin and their sin, if that's what you love, rather than speaking words of loving truth, then the reality is that you will die rather than live. You will die rather than live. 
And that's the problem with the world that we live in today. It's not just the world outside of us, but that's a problem for every one of us, personally. This, it's very hard for us to move to a place where we desire to hear truth in our inward parts, as the psalmists say. This is a desire that only God can birth inside of you or I, where we, where we live joyfully and expectantly towards hearing the words of truth rather than having our ego stroked by smooth talk. Luke tells us that Luke tells us that the spies who were sent by Jesus' enemies asked him this question. It's a deceptive question, really. It says, Teacher, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. How about that? Like, put, put yourself in this place for a minute and think about the way they're talking to him. Hey, teacher, they're, they're using a, a title of endearment and, and authority and power. They're trying to set him up on a stage, right, where he might stumble. Thankfully, Jesus is perfect in a place where you or I might have stumbled and gone, oh, you called me pastor. Right? Teacher, we know that you speak, speak and teach rightly and you show no partiality and your teachings are good. Like the things that you say are spot on. I never fall asleep when you talk and... You have my full attention. Like they're laying it on thick, right? Uh, I love to hear some of those things. <laughs> you show no partiality. You, you equally offend everyone, <laughs> right? You show no partiality. But, but you truly teach the way of God. Man, Jesus, the things you are teaching are like the very words of God just dropping down out of heaven to us in our seats every week. Right? This is the way they're coming after him. And then they ask this question. After they've got them all buttered up, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not. And this statement in question from Jesus' enemies, like just reeks of the stench of deception, right? Because first of all, first of all, if they really believed what they were saying about Jesus, if they really believed that that was true, then why didn't they just simply obey every word that came out of his mouth? They really believed that. Why didn't they just obey every word that came out of Jesus' mouth? Why were they seeking to destroy him if that was true? If they really believed that he was a great teacher who taught the truth of God, if they really believed that he showed no partiality, why didn't they obey what he taught? Secondly, secondly, this question that they're asking really is a question of deception. And it's meant to get Jesus kind of on the ropes of a dilemma. See, if he, if he answers the question on one hand by saying on this hand, like, yeah, you should pay your taxes, then, then, then the people that are hanging on his every words would most likely get upset with him and stop hanging on his every word, which would be great for the people that oppose Jesus because they're ticked off, remember, that these people are hanging on his every word. And so if he would just answer it that way for them, that would be great because at that point, the entire mob would turn against Jesus simply because to tell those people to pay their taxes to a government that is corrupt 
was like speaking hate-filled words to other people, right? They didn't want to hear that. That wasn't the truth that these people wanted to hear. On the other hand, if Jesus answered by saying that, that they shouldn't pay their taxes to the Roman government, then inevitably what would happen is he'd be signing his own death note because by saying that, he would literally give the Romans the authority or, or, or the, uh, the implication then to, to murder him. Because to not pay taxes to Rome at that point in time was payable by death. Penalty for not doing so was death. <coughs> Horrible death. <coughs> the Romans practiced crucifixion. The question for you and I as we think about this, as we think about just this spot in the text, as these slimy little guys come and ask this question and, and we kind of wait for Jesus' response, right? The question for us is like, at what point and what place do you or do I live in deception? In what places have you and I given in to lies about God or about His Word that now hold you in bondage so that you cannot taste the freedom that God has in store for you through the cross of Christ? Do you say one thing about Jesus and his instructions to you and then go on living in ways that undermine the truth that you claim to believe about him? Do you find yourself looking for loopholes, looking for loopholes in what God has said so that you can continue living in your sin? When you think of the ways that you manage your money or manage your time or invest in relationships, do you proclaim Christ while then living deceptively in opposition against him? Like if this describes you, if you're feeling like, I don't know, if you're feeling like an inch tall as I'm asking those questions, I don't want you to feel an inch tall. It's not, it's not my desire. Like sometimes when I read texts like this and I begin to wrestle with the implications and the questions within my heart, there are times when I feel deeply convicted and kind of beat down a bit, but then at the same time I feel like God kind of gives me this grand picture of the cross of Christ and the work that He went through and His sacrifice so that you and I could be free from that guilt or that shame or that deception. So, so what I don't want is for us to live under the weight of Deception. There are places of your life that you have, that you have um, maybe made excuses in that you need to repent of in these moments. I mean, quite honestly, all of us are guilty at some point in time or another of giving God lip service while living in open rebellion against Him in some places of our lives. My prayer for us, my prayer for us is that we would hear this passage, that we would be reminded of this truth and that we would act upon the truth that in the midst of any kind of opposition, in the midst of any kind of hostility that is within our hearts or our minds, in the midst of any kind of hostility that is in the world around us, in the midst of any deception that might be present in our hearts, in the midst of any lies that the world tries to throw at us, in the midst of all of that, the truth is that Jesus answers in such a way that he silences anything that opposes him. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. 
He is the one whom has given his life as a sacrificial payment for you and I so that we would no longer have to live deceived, no longer have to live in the bondage of sin, no longer have to look for loopholes through, no longer have to look for ways to get around the truth of what he asks us, no longer have to live a life that hides from the light that the gospel shines in into our hearts. He has given his life as a ransom so that you and I could be set free, so that we could walk in wholeness and healing and no longer walk in hostility towards him or opposition towards him, but that so that we can live a life that completely embraces him because he has embraced us first through the work of the cross. This is the message of the gospel, right? This is the message of the gospel that in the, in the midst of anything that is hostile to him, in the midst of anything that opposes him, he himself, Christ himself, not the knowledge that you or I gain of Christ, but Christ himself literally takes up residence in you and you become one with him in his death and his suffering and his resurrection so that you can now live in the power and the hope of a new life. And th this, is, this is the gospel. This is the gospel which sets us free from the bondage of deception. And so it's common today, you think about this, it's common today for us um, to argue. Right? Anybody here like to argue? I like to argue too. Whenever I'm preaching, I'm really just arguing with imaginary opponents. <laughs> Ever think about that? Ah. Ask any preacher, he'll tell you the same. And if he doesn't, he's lying to you. And you should pray for him. <laughs> Don't tell anybody I said that, please. Gosh. Can you please cut that out of the recording, Michael? Thank you. <laughs> It's common for us to argue, right? It's common for us to argue in, in our culture. You've probably heard this argument quite a bit, an argument for the separation between church and state. Uh, and we could probably spend a long time here. Uh, we, some of us would probably go back and forth vehemently and um, maybe leave bruises. Well, Brandon would. Um, and so I know this is a... <laughs> I know this is a common argument uh, in our culture uh, that there should be a separation of church and state. And some have tried to use this passage in that way. Um, but I don't think that what Jesus is doing in this passage is, is trying to advocate for that separation. Uh, I think if you do a thorough study of this passage... Um, uh, especially in comparison with, with the other um, parallel um, Gospels that, uh, that are alongside of this. Um, and I think if you read a few commentators that are noteworthy, um, that, that I think you would probably land in the same place. That I don't think what Jesus is arguing here for is a separation of church and state. It, it, I think it's as though Jesus in his infinite wisdom is, is like actually arguing for the truth that our obedience to the government must flow from our obedience to God himself. That's where our obedience to the government must flow from. It must flow from 
God Himself and our obedience to Him and the centrality of our obedience to Him. Like, like, like the center of our obedience to our government must flow out of the center of our obedience to the Lord Himself as our Master and our King. This is the truth of Jesus' answer. Luke tells us that, that Jesus perceived their craftiness. So I love this about Jesus because, because Jesus always sees the deception and then speaks truth into it. Where you or I might miss it sometimes and go, man, I wonder, like, man, was that, was that a deception thing? Um, where you and I might get tripped up or caught up, Jesus catches it right away. He perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? Now this is an interesting moment. This is an interesting moment because the people that have now asked him this question, they're asking this question, hey, should we pay these taxes? He's like, huh, well, the coin that you would pay those taxes with, do you have one in your pocket? Of course they do, right? And so they take one out of their pocket and they hand it to him and he says, so tell me, tell me whose likeness, whose picture is on it and what inscription does it have on there? What, is it, what does the coin say? And I think there would have been a moment where, where those people that were trying to trap him would have said, oh crap, he's got us. Because the reality for them is that for them to even be there where they were at was they would have had to have been able to pay that tax. Right? So then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. In other words, what Jesus is doing is he's instructing them, and us really, to live in obedience to the laws of the land out of our obedience to the Lord. This is the truth of Jesus' answer. It's so simple and profound at the same time. There is no either or. There is only both and. He's, not, he's saying this is not an either or argument. This is a both and. Now let me explain it this way. If you and I were a Roman citizen, then the tax for being a Roman citizen would have been a denarius with the Roman emperor's picture on it. And please don't forget that the Roman emperors thought of themselves as God. <coughs> These coins literally belonged to Caesar because his picture was stamped on it. Stamped on it. And they also had this inscription on those coins. And you think of our coins that we have, they have different pictures of presidents' heads and faces, right? And then on one side, in God we trust, right? Well, for them, the inscription would have referred to Caesar as God. That's the way the inscription on those coins would have been. Instead of, instead of what ours say, it would have referred to... So think of our coins referring to presidents as God. That's what these coins would have been like. And so the implication of this tax was that a human God named Caesar actually owned you and would put you to death if you refused to pay the tax that he asked for. That was the implication. The implication was that, was that the, the Caesar in Rome, the Roman emperor, owned you and would put you to death if you refused to pay the tax that he asked of you. I think for a minute about our Father in Heaven. 
Good news, bad news. Bad news, good news, right? The gospel must have bad news and good news. Think about our Father in heaven for a minute. Think about what he has given to purchase you from the slave owner of sin and the paycheck of death. Think about what he's given for you. Think about what he's done for you. Think about whose picture has been inscribed on you. Think about the image that was inscribed on you from day one. Think about what God asks you to give him. Aren't we to give ourselves to God, the one who has created us and loved us from the beginning and sacrificed his son on our behalf? Jesus, in all of this truth, is simply saying, give to the government what belongs to them as you give yourself to God as his belonging, as his possession, as one who has been purchased by him. What does this simple truth provoke within you as you think about that? Do you pray for our government authorities? Do you, do you speak winsomely about our governing authorities? Do you diligently seek to live within the laws of our government? Do you do these things because you understand that by doing them, you are in fact giving yourself to the Lord as his belonging? See, when we seek to live in ways that are obedient and honoring towards our governing authorities be, because, because God has asked us to, when we do that, we shine as lights in a dark world. We, we effectively live out the gospel for others to see, to be encouraged by, to be challenged by. We effectively become Jesus' ambassadors, Christ's ambassadors in the midst of a crooked and hostile and deceptive world. We effectively become his ambassadors in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation which seeks to live in opposition to Christ. It's why I keep saying that we should do all these things and more because in the midst of a hostile and deceptive world, Jesus is the answer that silences the opposition, both within us and both outside of us. And in this final verse, in verse 26, <coughs> we see the results of Jesus' answer. And if we first start off by looking at the hostility of Jesus' enemies and then looking at the deception of Jesus' enemies, then we start looking at the truth of Jesus' answer to them. The final thing that we see in this last verse is the results of his answer. Like when Jesus drops the microphone of truth in this passage, he effectively, as I've been saying all along, silences the opposition against him. He silences the hypocrisy. He silences the deception. And the reason that this happens is because in the presence of truth, opposition, hypocrisy, and deception are silenced. They are stopped. The word of Christ is what speaks boldly into the hostility and the deception within us and outside in the world. It is the word of Christ which silences and changes and transforms those things. Luke explains it this way. <coughs> explains that when Jesus answers his enemy's deceptive question with this simple truth... 
when Jesus explains that our obedience to our governing authorities must flow from our obedience to God himself. His enemies were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But catch this last piece. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is what the simple truths of Jesus' answers to our complex questions do. His simple, truthful answers silence the opposition and the hypocrisy and the deception both around us in the world and within our hearts. This is what you and I need the most today. What you and I need the most today is to hear from Christ. We need Him to come and to speak the simple and practical truths of the gospel into our hearts and our lives. See, when the raging world around us and the tumultuous seas within us are in need of silencing, the truth of the words of Christ are capable of flowing into any and every situation and silencing that opposition and the hypocrisy and the deception because the truth is is that in the midst of your hypocrisy in the midst of of your hostility in the midst of your deception Christ speaks and when he speaks he silences anything that opposes him revelations reminds us that he will come back one day and when he comes back he will have an iron scepter in his hand And his clothes will be drenched in the blood of the saints who have died for their faith. Who have faced this kind of intense opposition. And as he comes back, he will be on a horse, a white horse with a tattoo on his leg, which says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And a sword will be coming out of his mouth. And lightning bolts will be coming out of his eyes. And when he comes back, he will speak. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be no more games then. There will be no more playing around then. Only then. Only then. And at that point, Jesus will silence all of the opposition once and for all. And yet we live here in this time in the face of bad news that we see. We see the hostility. We experience the hostility within us. We, we see the deception and the lies in our, in our country and in the world around us. And we, we increasingly, if you follow Christ, you, you will come across those places of your heart that have been taken by Satan and his deception and his lies. And Christ will speak into those and set you free. In the midst of all that, in the midst of the hostility and the deception and the truth and all the results that we've talked about this evening, the question that you and I have got to ask is, is are you and I in any way living in open hostility to the Lord? Are you in any way living in the bondage of deception? Have you believed lies about yourself and about Christ and about others and about the gospel, about his word? Have you believed those lies? And are you living based upon those lies? And are you hearing the simple truths of the gospel? The gospel is so simple. Are you hearing the simple truths of the gospel every single day in a way in which you are encouraged to grow and to change and to become more holy in your walk with the Lord? And are the results of the gospel evidenced in your life? Listen, to live, to live in hostility to the Lord is to live in opposition to Him. 
And to live in deception or lies is also to live in opposition to the Lord. But the truth of the gospel can set you free because in the midst of any kind of hostility and in the midst of any kind of deception that might get thrown at you or that has been growing in you, Jesus himself standing at a pulpit in the hallways of your heart is the answer that silences the opposition. Let's pray. Father, as our music team comes forward, God, I just pray that you would um, use some of what I've preached this evening to draw us into um, just the final moments of worship. Pray, God, that you would, um, that you would center our minds and our hearts on you. I pray, Lord God, that you would just, in a sense, set up shop right here in our hearts in these moments and that you would reveal to us places in our lives, maybe, that we have believed things that are not true of you. Lord, I know that it is true that you love us. I know that it is true that that you have created us. I know that it's true that you placed your image on us. I know that it's true that sin came into the world and broke it and effectively broke us so that the the image of you on us is um, shattered. And yet I know that it is true that you sent your son Jesus to give his life as a ransom and a payment for that sin so that we could be healed and put back together. And so that we could experience your love and so that we could then live lives that love you. I know that you sent your son and I know that you have given us your spirit at this time to speak the word of Christ into our hearts so that we might know you and love you. Thank you, God, for that gift. Thank you, God, for that gift. Thank you for the gift that you've given us and the power of your spirit and the presence of your spirit to silence anything that opposes you speaking life-giving words of truth that can set us free. So God, I pray that in these next moments as we engage in worship and prayer and communion that you would just center our thoughts and our hearts on you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going we're gonna to close in worship and communion. There will be two of us near the front to serve communion. You can use these aisles here to come, receive communion, use the outside aisles back around. And uh, we just encourage you as you come, as you come, like even before you come, even before you come, maybe spend a few moments just thinking, thinking upon the presence of Christ thinking upon the word of Christ, thinking upon the work of Christ, thinking upon the sacrifice of Christ. He gave himself for you. He gave himself for you willingly. He did that. He wanted to do that. He wanted to give himself at that cross so that you and I could become sons and daughters of God. (coughs) He did that so that you and I could be made whole, so that you and I could be made complete so that you and I could be healed, so that you and I could be given the opportunity to hear His voice speaking into the chaos of our hearts in the midst of the chaos of this world. If you're here and you've trusted in Him and you've believed in Him, then we invite you to grab communion with us. If you're here and you're, and you're not a believer, you have not taken that time to believe in Christ, and then I would encourage you to wait. 
it's probably not the, a good time for you to do this because it would only be a mere sense of kind of religious tradition that you would do it. So I, I would ask that you wait. But there will be two of us near the front after we serve communion to pray with you if you have needs. Um, so let's do that now. Love you guys. Thanks for letting me preach. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.